I had such a bad drinking episode with strangers. I had gone out to a well-known restaurant here called Earl's and I had met some people and we were doing shots of Goldschlager. It's that cinnamon drink with, it actually has little flecks of gold in it and driving them home thinking that that was a good idea in my little blue sports car that I had. And, um, while I'm driving thinking, Oh my God, I'm so wasted. Like usually when you're driving again, I am admitting to it. Uh, it was many, many years ago. Statute of limitations has run out on it. (laughs) It was like over 20 years ago. Okay, people. But I did, I drove and I was so scared the next day that I had to leave the lights on the next night which is such a weird reaction, but I couldn't even be, it's like when you turn off the lights, you get more into your uh, thoughts into yourself. It's a, you know, chemical thing that happens. And I couldn't, I had to keep the TV on and the lights on because I am not going to go inside my head. As we used to say in AA, do not go inside your head alone. It's a bad neighborhood, Mm. right? You don't want to be in there alone. Welcome to the tribe. This is your weekly podcast from tribe sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 177. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, We help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we know from personal experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community Each week, we feature a community voice, just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. I did some research on the theory of change in 66 days, and I kept going. And somewhere between 55 and 66 days, I found a new life. I slept well. I was happy. I was full of energy, and I lived life as I imagined it should be. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest this week is tribe member Susanna Porowski. She's a dancer, a choreographer, a singer and a piano player. She's a woman of many talents. And she can now add sobriety to that skill set as she's recently celebrated her first soberversary. And she's busy developing a new career as a sober coach. I began our conversation by asking Susanna to introduce herself. My name's Susanna Porowski. I live in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I'm a life coach. I am an ex 
theater performer. I was a choreographer for a few years, a dancer before that. So I actually started as a piano player. And I have two wonderful children. They're both boys, 14 and 18. Yes, so I'm kind of seeing a little bit of the experiment of an empty nester because my 18-year-old got a job all summer. I'm fine with it. <laughs> because they're great. They're uh, very uh, accomplished uh, for their age and uh, they uh, train taekwondo. So do, so do I, for that matter. And my husband, Colin, that's me. Awesome. Thank you. So let's dive into the drinking story, shall we? When did it all start? Yes. Why not? Teenage drinker. Um, so I've been thinking about this. Yes. Um, and I listened. I'm a great fan uh, of your podcast. Um, that's how I first found you. And um, I would say it's about the same age as a lot of other people because it was 14. So I got into my father's brandy at 14. He was drinking it often. His life changed dramatically with alcohol uh, as well um, later on. But for the moment, it was still friendly and social. And uh, I saw him drinking this. And I think he offered me my first shot, if I remember correctly, and took it. And then I snuck back and had more. And the next thing I remember, it was the next day. And uh, there were stories of how I'd been put to bed and uh, was quite wild and um, so I had gotten intoxicated to blackout my first time drinking. Now I see from everything I've learned that that's actually a bad sign that right away it goes that way, <laughs> that you want more and more and you're insatiable. And I, and I remember that feeling of, you know, the lightness and not for long because I very, very quickly got to blackout, but um, just how it felt going down my throat, how I was not inhibited, um, all of that right away from the first time I drank. Um, and then I would drink with friends. It might have even been before the brandy that I'd had some beers because um, me and my friend from junior high, we decided it would be a good idea, since she lived close to school, to go home at lunchtime and have a beer. That was the big plan. I think we were in grade seven or grade eight. So that day she asked her dad, are you going to come home for lunch? And she had never asked him that before. So he got suspicious. <laughs> Yeah, we got quite wasted on the one beer or maybe two beers, like one each. I don't remember. And I think there was three or four of us gals, but uh, something about someone sitting on the stairs. I knew how memory is. It could have even been me. And and her dad came home and yeah, did we ever catch heck? And then that was uh, just a slow progression because there was not a lot of drinking. But I moved out young. I was in grade 11 and my parents were going through a divorce. The drink was The drinking was definitely a player. In the divorce, my mom actually, when my father phoned her, he traveled a lot with his work. He was in the theater. He was a director, actor, what have you. He went where the shows were. And uh, when he was coming back from a gig, he asked her to pick him up from the airport. And she said, sure, where would you like me to drive you? So that was that. So my dad was gone. I'm 13, 14. Um, a little older by the time that that conversation happened that he actually left. And uh, for some reason, I got my own apartment in grade 11. I mean, I was just craving this independence. And I had started hanging around with that crowd, skipping school uh, with three other girls. And also started in me this need. I had an obsessive need to be liked. I would compromise who I was 100%. And the ones, if you were aloof to me, ignored me, then you had something I wanted. And 
I wanted to win you and I wanted you to like me people pleasing right from the get-go and so I would hang around with them we would go to bars the drinking age in Edmonton is quite young it's 18 but that still wasn't young enough for me we had to be out there at 16 17 and uh started skipping school and drinking even at uh, 16 17 when we'd go out to the bars we'd go back to my place uh, we would drive it was all funny you know who drove last night oh you did Susanna oh ha 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 very not funny. I'm very, very not funny. I'm uh, just so grateful that uh, on the one hand that nothing happened. And on the other hand, sometimes you get a wake up call early, however your life goes, but I never did. And then off to, um, off to Toronto. Um, I actually left, uh, I was waitressing underage 17 and the owner of the bar uh, and I were dating very inappropriate. He's a lot older than me. And um, we moved to Toronto. He was a sax player and he was going to play in a band. And I had these delusions that I was all of a sudden going to be able to have enough material to also play in the band with them. I did play piano fairly well, but I just didn't have the material. Um, so I went with him. He left after 10 days and I stayed because I felt I had nothing to go back to, I guess. And uh, I don't really remember a lot of my feelings. We were partying, so drinking. And, uh, you know, I marvel when I read quitlets and listen to guests talking about their drinking, how much they remember. And I'm, I'm like, well, wait a minute. I don't remember anything because I was drinking. <laughs> the basic movements are there. I was in this city at this time doing this, but I, I don't really remember. It was just constant. So I went to Club Med as a piano player. I was dancing. I'm 17 years old and all I have to do is play piano and dance on stage. It was wonderful. And that was the beginning. And I was at Club Med for the next, uh, I did stop for college. I went to college for three years in um, music theater performance to just improve my skills as a dancer choreographer. So I went back to Club Med as the choreographer. Well, Club Med sounds like a lovely environment to work in. How on earth did you manage your drinking during those years? Now, the drinking, I had a rule. This is my aim. This is why I'm telling you this story. Every second night, I would drink. Generally, over that time, it, it worked for me. So one night, happy. The other night, oh, maybe not so happy. Go to bed early. One night, happy. And that's the way it worked. It tended to work for me for a while. And there was um, alcohol served at lunchtime. Uh, it's a French, it's a European company, and there's uh, much more drinking on a regular, maybe not as much. It's funny about different countries and the whole drinking culture. It's still very ubiquitous. It's predominantly here in Canada, but it's a different kind of drinking. Yeah. And in the West, it's go out into the woods and drink till you pass out. So they don't so much do that in Europe, but yet they're drinking all day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was reading the other day that France, you know, I've got a French husband, so I've seen it for myself. They, they actually consume more alcohol than most countries. I think they're number three or number four. But as you say, you know, they, oh. they start at lunchtime and it's, it's moderate. Yes, my brother-in-law. So my sister lives in France. And what I noticed is very, very interesting is Patrick... Um, my brother-in-law, he collects wine. He has a beautiful wine cellar and he doesn't drink it. And it, I've met a few French people like that. It's still part of the culture. Mm. You pair the wine and yet 
Some of them don't drink at all. Some of them, but uh, it is definitely part of the fabric of France. Yeah, Club Med is French, isn't it? So alcohol's always available, I guess. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. This company breeded uh, alcoholics. If I don't really use the term anymore, but at the time we were still using that term. And so coming out of this in my 30s, that was my explanation. Oh, well, it was my job. And so it breeded, it was this breeding ground for all this drinking and, and now I'll be fine. And for a while, I got bit by, if you want to call it that, um, a food obsession. I heard one of your guests talk about that, but that really took her down. So you had eating and drinking issues to deal with. I'm, I, I'm in my 50s now. And over my decades of drinking, there were times where I was going to AA. I've been going to AA on and off for all of this time, practically. Uh, I passed that 11-year statistic um, for when I first wanted to stop till now. I think I helped round out those years and make it so long because I calculated that really trying to stop actively, I'm at about 19 years. So when people are trying and they're not getting it, I, I really am always wanting to say on our wonderful Zoom cafes and meetings, I really want to encourage them that keep at it because I have a sobriety today that it doesn't look like any of the other sobrieties. And I'm also older and more mature and, and, and I know, and I know a little bit more, but there's a freedom that does finally come. Yeah. And in other sobrieties that I've had through AA on and off and even abstinence, because I, I had a real obsession with being a dancer. You're obsessed with your body. Uh, I mean, there's no other way to put it. You're auditioning. And I would sometimes hear lose 10 pounds. I was in a show once where we had to get on a scale and for every three pounds, you had to pay a fine. And there was a while where I was really having to stick to basically nothing. And then I would be so starving when the show would be over or the audition done. And I would eat my way to 30 pounds. Talk to me about when Um, when you first went to AA, Susanna. When did you go to AA uh, and why? How old were you about? I don't remember because I went to Alateen. My mom brought me to Alateen because she found great solace in Al-Anon. And so she knew that we were, we were suffering. Um, uh, so that's not Al-Anon. That's not AA. But I remember the, the long staircase. And to tell you the truth, Janet, I think my first meeting in a 12-step program, other than Alateen as a support um, you know, group for people who have um, are either adult children of alcoholic or ACOA, we call it, or um, uh, have an alcoholic in our lives. The other group that I think was my first 12 step was OA. Overeaters Anonymous was my first 12 step because I was living in Toronto before I went to Club Med and all the drinking. And then there was, so there was dabbling and then there was the food and then there was the drinking. And then, then they were always in tandem, sort of playing tennis with each other. You know, when I was drinking, my inhibition would be down and I would eat and so on. I know so many people relate to this, you know, because when I could hear some of the people on your podcast and they're talking about this food and alcohol, it often goes together yeah. uh, because of the dopamine hits yeah, and the yeah. sugar and all that. But my first OA meetings, I used to attend them a lot in Toronto. And they didn't have them as much in the West, but I remember I would go sometimes twice a day. It's very much like AA in that I remember 
feeling like I could breathe. I was like, I can just be here. I don't have to be, I don't have to do anything. I can just be a human being, not the human doing. Having a very, very productive older sister and mother. I'm not like that. I'm actually quite still and I make up for it with incessant talking to, this is my theory of the personality that I developed. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm bang on with this because when I'm with them, I can feel myself speeding up. But I grew up, as you can imagine, with just the older sister and the mom before the next sibling came along and to keep up with them. And my mom used to say, if she wanted to go somewhere and get something done, she'd take my sister. If she wanted to go somewhere and enjoy the trip, she'd take me. So I felt that I could be me. I felt not just because of the subject matter that, oh, you all abuse food and you're obsessed in one way or another, no matter your shape on the outside, as we've discovered, it doesn't matter if you're fat, thin, or other, you can be obsessed with food. You know, when I would say to people that I go to OA, they would automatically think, but why? You have a normal body size, because they would expect me to be either one or the other, very large or very small. But it's like, you have no idea. And my particular bulimia, as it was, was exercise, which is, again, a smaller percentage. But what you do is you're in one. It's like you have two gears, go or stop. That's it. So you're go, 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 lose all the weight. Enormously productive, almost manic depressive. And now today it's called bipolar, where you're manic or you're depressed. And the in-between, balanced, as I spend most of my time now, I would rarely see that. Yeah. Um, as for the then AA after the um, after Club Med, I was on the cruise ships for a while. I had a few other things in between. I was um, living in Miami. The food was bad. I remember in Miami, the food was bad because um, I didn't have to perform anymore. And uh, the drinking wasn't so bad. Um, I don't think I was going to AA, though, because that happened a few times in my life where the food would be really bad. I'm going to AA. <laughs> Just a mess. All the- I was just me, Janet. I was just me. <laughs> was it one or the other, Susanna, or was it where they mixed up with each yes, other? Yes, it was usually a very good question. It was usually for some uh, strange reason, for the most part, one or the other. Yeah. Of course, we've all indulged where we've drank everything mm. and eaten everything all in the same evening, but, but or we have a pig out after a drunk. Yes. Where you go home and you find the mess the next morning. I once was subletting an apartment in L.A., and, and this is kind of embarrassing, but this is what this is for. It's, I want to share that I've been there. I was drinking and I'd rented a really hot car. I had, I don't know, a red Trans Am or something. At the time, I think it was called a Trans Am. It might've been a Corvette, but I rented, I decided, oh yeah, convertible or whatever. It's only an extra, an extra hundred a day. What's a hundred dollars? And um, I made good money, um, spent it all. And uh, I was subletting this apartment and feeling I was all that and would go out next morning. So I go out, blackout next morning. There's a hamburger that I had cooked or some kind of food. I don't remember. And it was on the inside. <laughs> this is so messed up. It's on the inside covered of the bathroom cabinet. Like WTF. What was I doing? <laughs> Put a piece of food there. And maybe I'm remembering it wrong ago because I was um you know this cumulative drinking ends up being this you know completely wet brain and I didn't know where the Corvette was 
think I remembered at the time what I was driving, but I don't remember where the actual vehicle was. And it was not mine. Oh my God. What a flipping mess. So yeah. And just being disgusted with myself and also being petrified. Like I remember being so scared of what could have happened and having to keep the lights on. Like I remember that night just not being okay with myself. You know, you want to just climb out of your skin. One time I I had a contract in a small town in Alberta. And um, so I moved, I migrated over to sales. What does an actress out of work do who hates waitressing? Sales. So I was uh, a loans officer or something for a timeshare company. And I, I had a contract in a small town. And I had such a bad drinking episode with strangers. I had gone out to a well known restaurant here called Earl's. And I had met some people. And we were doing shots of Goldschlager. It's that cinnamon drink with, it actually has little flecks of gold in it. And driving them home, thinking that that was a good idea in my little blue sports car that I had. And um, while I'm driving, thinking, oh my God, I'm so wasted. Like usually when you're driving, again, I am admitting to it. Uh, It was many, many years ago. Statute of limitations has run out on it. It's like over 20 years ago. Okay, people. But I did. I drove and I was so scared the next day that I had to leave the lights on the next night, which is such a weird reaction, but I couldn't even be, it's like when you turn off the lights, you get more into your uh, thoughts into yourself. It's a, you know, chemical thing that happens. And I couldn't, I had to keep the TV on and the lights on because I am not going to go inside my head. As we used to say in AA, do not go inside your head alone. It's a bad neighborhood, Mm. right? You don't want to be in there alone. Those drunk driving incidents obviously scared you. Did you always resolve to tackle your drinking the morning after? I knew already this is a problem, but again, not admitting it. If I would smoke cannabis, it would get worse. It was like I was double drunk. One little pull, two pulls, and I don't know how people do it. Uh, so I've never been able to smoke cannabis, which is, you know, maybe maybe a blessing. And then on I go. And eventually I end up in um, New York City. Um, that was a big eating phase. I'm going to AA. My meeting was right where the towers were, down um, the two Twin Towers. I'm living in Tribeca. I was working at a place called LA Weight Loss, and I'm now a weight loss counselor, <laughs> even though I was eating my face off. You know, I might as well get the product for free because I need it because I'm eating my face off. I am living in New York, going to AA. And the morning of the towers on September 11th, 2001, I don't go to the meeting that day. Just like the other, you know, there's thousands of people that they just, for whatever reason, skipped it. And the towers are uh, above the Marriott Hotel. And that is where there's a whole shopping mall underneath. And the subway stop is right there. And it was filled with, you know, soot and debris if you were there. My meeting, my AA meeting started at, I think, like 7.30, I want to say, and went till 8.30. You yickety-yak with the other members for a while, but I didn't go, but was about 15 blocks away looking down the West Highway and, uh, and very soon left New York. The overall feeling in the place was much different as you can appreciate sure. i felt like an outsider they were hurt they were hurting mm. as my landlord would say you know she was a new yorker through and through and uh so it was a spiritual thing that i felt like i needed to go home after that yeah. it was it was you know enormous 
um, because the whole world, and I always say, we watched it on TV that day, and I was just a few blocks away, thinking that the whole city is going to crumble. I didn't know they grounded planes. I thought for sure that they were going to just start shooting. Like, I don't know anything. I didn't know that they could even instantly ground planes. (laughs) All you know is that things are blowing up around you. And I remember... And we were stuck in our office tower and then they let us leave around 5.30 and it was uh, cars were crushed outside for blocks and blocks and blocks. How I reacted was I was totally numb. Oh, that's what I was going to say. I told people who were here in Edmonton, people who were over in Europe, it, it didn't really matter where you were physically. I mean, clearly, if you were in front of the buildings and anything was happening and you were running, well, clearly that made a huge difference. But for any of us who were safe, and in New York, I think that the whole world felt kind of the same, yeah. which is shocked, scared, and all of that. So I, I learned an enormous amount um, for a little while, and then I shut down. As soon as I got back home that day, I had to show my ID to be let into where I lived because it was too close to the no-go zone. I just stay, and my job was now kaput. So I had no job to go to. So I just shut down and I was just eating and watching TV. And I would do that a lot. And I think any overeaters can relate that feeling of just, we want to, I want, I remember my joke was, I just want to climb into the VCR. Yes, it was a VCR back then. Yes, I'm old. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) was the comfort? Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's the numbness, isn't it? Whether it's alcohol or food, we just want to be numb. And And TV as well. The VCR keeps you numb as well. I must confess, if it were still working for me, I would be still doing it. This isn't some moral high ground mm. that I'm sober and now I did it and then I know how and I can, I hope I can help others, but I don't know that I can. I have no secret. The truth is it stopped working. And when did it stop working? Can you remember? Fundamentally, if one were to look on the outside, it probably stopped working like then, like 20 years ago. Right, right from those years that I already knew it wasn't working because I was in AA in New York. Obviously, I, I didn't drink a drop the six months that I lived in Manhattan or eight months or whatever. So I already knew, um, but then went back to it. Really not working. It's been, and that's why I have a new freedom. It's been over the last probably 10 years um, that I've been raising these kids. So I went to AA in 2007. I had a good run. I had a year, then had a slip, and then had another two years and had a few slips within the the two years. And then in 2015, in 2014, I lost a business. And I had built quite a good business, financial independence amount of business. Yeah, so it was all of a sudden gone. So I just watched Netflix and back to the eating and Netflix. And I think there was drinking. It was kind of all of it in 2015 and right, right in March. So this is December to March. If you watch Netflix and do little else for four months, you want look at your life around you. You'll see it. And I thought this isn't working. So what did you actually do after you decided that your TV food, alcohol formula just wasn't working anymore? I, I got on the treadmill, but I was still drinking wine. And I had this crazy idea to run five miles every day. Every day, seven days a week, I'm going to be five miles soon. I'm just flipping nuts, you know? All or nothing. Uh, I'd always worked out my whole life. Yes. Some of us can just admit it. I'll admit it all day long that my brain, it does fire off idea after idea. And that's, you know, fine because when I'm in a creative bent, I like it. 
but I'm going to run five miles a day. And I did. So I running, drinking. And then after two months of that, I think maybe I should stop the drinking. I think the running would be easier. Can you imagine drinking a bottle of wine and running five miles? Oh my God, it's painful, but I did it. And then I was uh, on a weight loss program because I believed in those because I used to work in the business. And anyway, so then I quit drinking. Um, But I had the running. You see the little uh, formula for disaster there? It wasn't the drinking. It was the running now. Now I have to run five miles every day or uh, I missed six days in 17 months. I mean, that's insane. So I kept sober after 17 months of running. And I looked amazing, by the way. Like the abs, you know? (laughs) I'm sure. I did like that part. Like I did like the very superficial uh, and I was strong, um, but I was, I was sick. I was mentally ill and I was physically injured. I had had old injuries from all the years that I was um, dancing. And I also did a little bit of other things while I was at club man, water skiing, trapeze flying and got and accumulated these injuries in, in the wild thrill seeking craziness. Um, that was my life. Uh, so I couldn't run anymore. I was uh, on a trip that I'd earned to Mexico. I was with my sister. And then I really had to run because, you know, you're in a bikini all day. I couldn't run anymore. It would hurt. I couldn't even walk. So I did it to myself. And I stayed sober 17 months. And I was cleaning the house one day. This is how innocent it comes back into your life. And a clean house and a nice glass of wine. That is a neural pathway got set up years ago, anything, you know, like what we use the example of the sunset anywhere beautiful yeah, and a glass of wine. So people are coming over anticipating a party. Um, I feel and look great. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got my makeup on my hair done. You know what I mean? Uh, the house is clean and I, someone had left this little, I'll, I'll finally swear. I, I said, I won't swear on the podcast, You can, but this little fucking orange cooler they had, they had left at my house at some party, and I thought, what harm could it do? Oh. And there I was, set up five years of drinking. Oh. Yeah, So where, and I went back to Craig Beck. So all the way along in the times there, I was AA, but I knew that. So that's when it crept in that AA is maybe not working. Mm. Like, man, I've been going to these 12-step programs for so long, and, and I'm still in the mire. Um, and just and now a couple of aphorisms for um, not aphorisms, but examples of perhaps how it can feel when you're in the soup. And then I can talk about my um, finally throwing the book at it was one night, not that long ago, a year and a half ago, maybe I was in the middle of the night awake as you are uh, so often when you're drinking and having, you know, the crap sleep I'm watching the iPad and I can't find anything. And God knows what I was listening to or watching. I would, I'd watch a lot of May Day when I was drinking. The plane crashes. And I, I have figured out why. It's because I'm comfortable in my bed and there's a plane crash. So somehow by the comparison, I can feel some kind of comfort because I'm so destitute inside. Um, but I'm being pulled that moment that I equally wanted to, you know, deepen my soul, uh, drink and not drink. So what's left in the middle? If I'm pulled like a tug of war, nothing. And it was very, uh, you know, I'm being dramatic, but it was dramatic. It was like, uh, I, I'm nothing. I'm, I'm done. This is not going to go on. Uh, I, I never was going to off myself because my kids 
and my husband because um, of them. Like I would never do that. Um, but I understand if people do, if that makes sense. So that was a moment. And I knew I would remember it. I thought, this is good. Yeah. You know, this is good. And I committed to memory so that during this year that I've enjoyed and not enjoyed, because I had some pretty shitty times during this year too, which I, uh, I can share. So Craig Beck, so I had read Craig, Craig Beck and had found some sobriety to the point that I would make my husband who still drinks, my husband drinks, um, my circle of friends at the time still drank. Now I've limited my exposure to them, but, um, I'd make him a margarita and I'd have a virgin one, but I couldn't use the same shaker. Mm. Like I couldn't just pour his and then put no alcohol in mine. I had to rinse it out because so much it was poison that I had been convinced by reading Craig Beck's really great book, uh, Alcohol Lied to You, back to it, you know, back again, reading the quitlet and I'm going to be sober and um, you're allowed to drink so that you can really feel what it's doing to you. And I have it down to a um, science by now. The every two days wasn't really my rule. I'd gone through the rule. My goodbye to alcohol letter is on your website, uh, www.tribesober.com. And I put my rules there. Uh, if anybody wants to see my rules, because you probably said them to yourself if you're at all anywhere along the spectrum of uh, either thinking about quitting or close to quitting, or maybe you've quit. And it's just uh, good to keep keep them in mind. But I had all the rules for for my drinking. And I was doing okay, because I wasn't really enjoying it anymore, because I, I'd gotten older, and my body was taking care of itself. And there's a point where I just can't have the third drink, because the second one, I'm already feeling a bit the uh, negative effect. So in, in a way, I had said to, you know, my family, I'd said to my mother, my body's going to help get me out of this because it's giving me such good feedback without having to go to blackout and without having to get hammered. But there's a voice inside of me and it's subtle and it's saying, you'd be better sober. You can think clearly, you know it, you already know it because you already know yourself sober. You know, you'd be better. So you can play this game all you want, but you'll be better. You'll be better. In the shower, we have a lot of thinking in the shower. I think it's because of the physical contact of the water that you're now in your body and it lights up other parts of your brain. So you think, I will never drink again. Happens a lot in the shower. (laughs) Or the resolution, I will not drink tonight. It's in the shower. If you finally get in the shower by two o'clock or whatever after a big drunk. And um, by the way, I'd gotten drunk in March of um, 2022 and it was bad. So much so, I didn't drink for two months with no resolution at all. I didn't say, I won't drink for two months. I literally couldn't touch the stuff. It was so bad. It was a company party of my husband's. It was an open bar. And at the prices of alcohol in Canada, I was like, woo! <laughs> Went for it. <sighs> Terrible. Doing shots. I think it was fun. I have no idea. You'd have to ask the other people. Did you look it as if you're out. having fun? We asked them. <laughs> right. Did it look fun? And And my husband pretended he didn't know me. He goes, no, 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 I'm not with them. (laughs) When they had cut off the company, they'd said, no, 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 you guys, you're all cut off. Um, And then my husband's part of the company. So he comes up to the bar and and he's with another guy from, and they're not drunk. They're they're probably a little bit tipsy, but they're not drunk. And he orders his drink and and then the bartender says, no, 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 we've cut you off. And he goes, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not with them. (laughs) 
So my husband disowned me and so he should. Um, and we left the car there that night, you know, just mm-hmm. all these things in place so that I can, you know, drink comfortably, not responsibly, but there it's going to keep us drinking comfortably. Uh, so we've been programmed that we just, you just set up your life to be able to drink, right? Yeah. There's a lot of ways to do it. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. If you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just head on over to tribesober.com and hit the membership tab. That's www.tribesober.com. And tell us more about your not this moment, Susanna. The moment you got so angry about being distracted by your thoughts about alcohol, you just couldn't enjoy the moment. Last summer... We went to a beautiful island, you know, um, Vancouver Island. There was one day where it was a beautiful day and we're walking along the beach. I think we're in Campbell River after a day of fishing. We weren't fishing that day. And all I can think about is, hey, let's find a little restaurant and have a little this and have a little bit and have my wine. I, I don't even see the beach. I don't even see. And that was pissing me off. I was like, it's so insidious. So how it creeps up to be your everything. You can hear how angry I am. And then you take it out on all kinds of things yourself. You take it out on people and even when you're sober. So when people are having alcohol as a problem in this gray area drinking, they might not have had a drink for two days. They still have a serious mental problem because they know in their mind that it's everything. Yeah. You know, the romance is on strong. Uh, I'm planning. I'm going to go to the store. I look forward to looking forward to a drink at five o'clock when it's 10 in the morning. That's a problem. Definitely. Even if you don't get drunk. Yeah. Because there's a mental lineage that is taking, as so many people have said on your podcast, it's not the time of the drinking and the drunk and the hangover. It's all the wasted real estate up here between the ears of just thinking about it, the whole phenomenon. I had had it and it was a new habit. And because of all the books, I had read more than that. I read Christy Coulter's book, Nothing Good Can Come From This. It's so subtle because she doesn't speak from the disease place. Mm. She speaks from the curiosity place of what would it be like if I just stopped drinking? Mm. And she, she didn't have an enormous problem, although she mentioned a few times where she had imbibed maybe a little bit too much, but it, it was just a culture with her work. Mm. I hope she doesn't mind me. Uh, well, she put it all in a book. Exactly. So mind. And I've actually reached out to her and she answered me. And I'd read that three times. I'd read Soberistas, the lady who wrote Soberistas, can't remember the name of the book, and those two wonderful ladies. I'd listened to that while I was cleaning. And, and it finally toppled. So keep going, people. You know, just listen and it'll finally reach that tipping point where you're just enough. And you've had enough of the whole big A. And you heard me at the beginning, Janet, when you first met me, and I was like moving into activism and I'd been sober like a month. <laughs> I was like so pissed off at the whole long con. But then but then you realize, you know, of course you're part in it as, as the year goes on. And um, one day, it was our anniversary, August 14th last year, and I had my half glass of wine because I had to. I couldn't have dinner without it because I was at the point where I, if it's there, I have to. And, and so all the choice is gone. And that pissed me off too. And I just knew, I said, that's it. And it was, it was so, it came in quietly. Mm-hmm. It was so weird. It wasn't this big. I didn't tell anybody, didn't tell my husband for, I've gone months before, so I didn't tell him anything. I just knew. And I had a quiet strength. I went to the bottle return a few days 
weeks, whatever later I was. And I knew that that was that last bottle. And I said, I think I'm going to hold this back and not return it. And I wrote the date <laughs> and I still have it oh, nice. with the date on it. Yeah. On my desk. It, quite ugly sometimes i want to chuck it because it's like no don't. when you're cleaning you're like oh <laughs> but i'm like no keep it and your tracker so the first time i met you was an email okay you uh emailed me back oh i listen so i was listening to over the influence a lovely podcast and uh you know they claim to be the biggest and whatever claims and they were fun they were fun and i looked at joining and then Sharon Hartley, wonderful host her energy matches mine in many ways and in a funny way i thought I need, I need a calm. I don't know. It was an inner soul thing. I was like, I need a, a counter mm. to my energy in the sober space, which is what my husband is, except he's not in this space with me yet. Cause he still drinks and he's never drunk with any kind of hang up, which used to piss me off. He could have a beer and leave it. So I heard your voice when I put into Spotify one day sober and tribe sober. So I listened and that's how I heard you. The very first podcast you talked about some physical tracker, Yes. And you had said, email me and I'll send you the PDF. Oh, and you so did. So I emailed you and you actually, <laughs> and you did. Anyway, and, they, and and in your response right away, you invited me to join the community. And I didn't right away. I listened to a couple more podcasts. And then you were absolutely right that uh, this was going to be the last piece. And I said to my husband, for the price of a bottle of wine, I'm going to join this thing. Well, I'm so glad you uh, did. It's the price of a bottle um, of wine a month. Congratulations on your soberversary. Talk to me about the benefits. If you had to pick three top benefits of sobriety, what would you focus on? Self-respect. Mm -hmm. That would be number one. That needs no explanation um, because of the integrity and this honesty piece that it's a foundation like a seed. If you don't start with the truth, every time you take in that drink, somewhere in you, especially if you're on number five for the day or whatever, somewhere in you, you know that um, it's not good for you. And it's not popular to uh, tell you that it's not good for you. It's not popular to be that blunt, but uh, that would be the number one thing is it gives you a fighting chance at an honest life. At least that's how I see it for me. You know, you do you. Um, the second thing I knew you were going to ask this because you send the questions ahead of time and there's so many that it's hard to get it down to three. Uh, definitely mornings. I'm a morning person and you might as well write off your mornings if you're a heavy drinker, yeah. unless you're still up. Yes. And then you're not much use anyway. You're not much use anyway, you know, unless you've got your third or fourth wind or something, some crazy morning. But no, mornings, I love them. I get up early. I meditate. Uh, I go walk the dog and just how that, how the outside smells in the morning is there's nothing like it, you know, the evenings too, but mornings are really, really precious. And, and the creativity, I'm, I'm a creative and it's there full on the flow of uh, soul connectiveness, source, God, whatever you call it. Um, if you don't have um, a faith, just that feeling that you're at one with nature for me stronger in the morning and it's probably stronger in the morning scientifically like with the circadian rhythm just yeah. starting so then so then um mornings i post quite often on my wellness facebook group this will never get old like if you have a beautiful morning yeah. it just it never gets old and then um 
The other thing is my children, that they have a much better chance at a healthy perspective with their choices because their mom was sober, you know, a lot of the time growing up. Because during those days where I was sober with A, it was wonderful. You know, um, A was helping me at the time and uh, a little sidebar. I didn't want to belong. I think I told you that before that I wanted my sobriety to belong to me, not to belong to any group. So that if I lost the group, I was still sober. Yeah. That's just, that's just the way I see it. So I think my children are something, and I think I will definitely not only see it now in them, but I think it's something that will really be great later because we have a great relationship. Yeah. So those are my top three. And last question, Susanna, if someone's listening to this and they're really stuck in their drinking and they, they just don't know where to start, what would you suggest? What, what little thing? Just open up to one person that you can trust. Mm. You know who they are. It, it might be someone that you've met recently. I mean, it doesn't have to be someone that you've known like forever. Cause sometimes those are the people that when it comes to this, that's not your people. Uh, I wouldn't open up to uh, a sister. Um, my mom, that's, that's just wasn't the right people to open up to about this. In my particular case, it was the tribe sober group that I could at any point in any of the, uh, we have a great chat group on WhatsApp. I, I'm telling your audience, obviously, you know that, Janet, you set it up. And I could sidebar with any one of them at any time. So having those resources, and I had said that there was hard times in the year, and it really comes back to this group, because on the third month, you can find yourself in a dark place or the sixth month, like you did when you found a tried sober, you needed a project. See, I listen to all your podcasts and I know your story. And people should go back and listen to your story. It's just so wonderful. And the relapse girl, Melissa, that's my favorite podcast. Because that was me, 25 relapses, right? But on the third month, when I was really come to a head, I happened to be going to a sibling reunion in Toronto. And it was wonderful. I love my sisters and my brother. But there was going to be drinking. And I used to drink with that group with my brother and with the one sister drinks and there. And I was three months sober and uh, hadn't lost a pound. That was another motivation to quit drinking as well. I'll lose weight. At least there's that. Nope, my body's hanging on to all the weight this time, even though I was exercising and not drinking. So that's been a new challenge uh, post-menopause. But here it is. I talked to Lynette. I had my free coaching session. And then I did continue with her a bit. And, you know, she was able to say, it's okay for people to be wrong about you. Because my siblings and I had a a big argument and um, it was my own just being pissed off that I couldn't drink. Even though I said I was all at peace with it and it came in subtly and all those things I said. And, you know, I'm sitting on some rock meditating and everything's fine. No, it isn't. Not all the time. Uh, I still get visits, you know. And so that really was helpful to have the group because before I left, I actually armed myself with some things that they had said. So I said, okay, I'm going to the civilian. It's going to be exactly my third month. And I go right away, because it's a 24 hour thing, because they're all over the world. People were there for me. And I think that that's the number one thing is to, if it's not tribe sober, you have to open up because you're as sick as your secrets. If you keep it a secret for too long, if I had kept it a secret when I got sober and I just stayed that way, there would have been an occasion 
where, well, I haven't had anybody told anybody anyway, so it doesn't look like I'm doing a 180. I don't have to save face and back I go. Yeah. Yeah. You need to be accountable. So, yeah. And I love what you said, Susanna, about mm-hmm. you have to find your people and you have to find your people for this. It's huge. If, especially up here, mm-hmm. mentally, you've surrendered. Mentally, you're ready to go on without it. How you behave. That's why some of our tribe members, they're still drinking when they join because they just, they know something's amiss. They want to make a change. They want to see examples of it. Yep. Um, you're looking for that. And the tribe is a great source of that. Yeah. So when you have even your first 24 hours, it could be a dinner and, and we'll celebrate it with you because it's about now you get sober on this moment. You don't get fit today on yesterday's workout. You get fit today on today's workout. Yeah. And it's the same thing with my sobriety. No matter what's going on, I am sober. Now I'm moving into my second year because I always had a slip at the first year. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, but I had a revelation and I just wanted to mention it too. I'm glad I remembered. I have a vision for my future and it's as a sober person. And I know that it's cautious in the beginning to say, I will never drink again because the brain trying to protect itself and this friend that we think is our friend that we've had will find a little bit of, uh, you know, more fear, undue fear with that statement that I will never drink again. Maybe it's too much. For me, though, with so many years of relapse, that it's a vision that has taken hold of my life, using my imagination and visualization of being a sober person, you know, where I'll live, what it looks like, you know, manifestation, um, a surrendered manifestation is something that's helpful for me. And um, I've shared it a little bit with the tribe, but I've done it cautiously because if I say I have a vision that I will never drink again, and I have a vision like shedding skin, like a snake mm. does, you know, when mm. it sheds skin, because the same mind that came up with the problem, is not the same mind that will fix it. Thank you so much for the share, Susanna. Let's pull out a few key points. Susanna's first experience of alcohol was at the age of just 14 when she got stuck into her father's brandy. Rather than being repulsed by the taste of it, she actually drank it until she blacked out. As Susanna herself said, that enthusiasm for alcohol after the first drink is a warning sign of possible problems in the future. She also remembers leaving school at lunchtime to drink beers at a friend's house. Her father was a drinker and her parents divorced when she was a teenager. Susanna left home at an early age. Fiercely independent with an obsessive need to be liked, she'd go drinking with her friends in bars at the age of 16 and then she'd bring people back to her place for drinks. Drinking and driving was normalised in her friendship group. Susanna worked as a choreographer at Club Med in Bermuda. Like many of us, she started creating rules around her drinking. She would only drink every second night. Susanna describes Club Med as a breeding ground for alcoholics. As a child of an alcoholic, Susanna was familiar with the 12 steps from her Alateen meetings. So when her own drinking started to escalate, of course she went to AA. As a dancer, she was under huge pressure to stay slim so she also struggled with her eating patterns, so she went to Overeaters Anonymous as well. 
She did achieve some periods of sobriety via AA, but she also had some really bad drinking episodes. Like the time she was driving a rented sports car and woke up after a blackout with no memory of where she'd actually parked the car. Or the time when she was so shaken by a drunk driving episode that she had to sleep with the lights and TV on. Or the time when she was so shaken by a drunk driving episode that she had to sleep with the lights and TV on. Her fear was lying in the dark and going into her own head as she puts it. The bad neighbourhood, I think she called it. She was in New York on 9-11, so although she wasn't directly affected, just like the rest of the world, she was shocked and horrified and very frightened. Susanna also lost her job as a result of 9-11, which meant that she could stay in her apartment. She could eat and she could drink and watch Netflix, trying to numb her feelings. But she got to a point where the drinking just wasn't working anymore. She managed quite lengthy spells of sobriety, but she always went back to drinking. In 2014, she lost her business, so once more turned to Netflix, drinking and food to cope. She did manage to quit drinking, but replaced it with an obsessive running routine. Five miles a day and only missing a few days in 17 months. And in fact, she managed almost three years of sobriety with AA. And then she had a slip up. At Tribe Sober, we often talk about the importance of uncoupling positive experiences from alcohol. The classic one here in South Africa is, I can't enjoy the sunset without a glass of wine. But of course, we have to replace those patterns with more healthy habits, like watching the sunset with an alcohol-free drink. So back to Susanna's slip-up. She cleaned the house, done her hair and makeup, and she was waiting for some guests to arrive. Everything was good and she felt an irrational urge to celebrate this fact with a drink that had been left over from a previous party. And that's when she started to wonder if AA was not working for her. So she dived into the quitlet and started to explore different approaches. And around this time, she felt that her body was no longer tolerating alcohol like it used to. She felt as if her body was giving her feedback that... Actually, life would be better sober. But she still had a mental struggle going on. The cognitive dissonance that so many of us are familiar with. Our conscious mind telling us to quit and being challenged by our subconscious beliefs that we need alcohol to enjoy our lives. At Tribe Sober, we talk about our not this moment. That's the moment when we realise that we're done with alcohol. We can't do this anymore. We're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Susanna had her not this moment when she was walking along a beautiful beach, but rather than basking in the beauty of her surroundings, her mind was occupied with finding a little bar where she could drink some wine. This made her so angry, she decided she was done. As she said, alcohol is insidious, the way it slowly becomes your everything. She talked about the tipping point of sobriety. We get to it when we've been trying to quit drinking for years and then one day something shifts and everything falls into place. 
all the sober stretches you've done, all the quick lit you've read, all the conversations you've had, they all come together and bring about a shift. We hear this a lot at Tribe Sober, and as Susanna said, it's the reason why we must never stop trying. It will work out in the end. And I love what she said about her personal tipping point. She said, it came in quietly. I didn't tell anybody. I just knew. And I felt a quiet strength. Susanna discovered Tribe Sober via this podcast. As a result of the podcast, she emailed me for a PDF of our annual tracker. If you'd like an annual tracker, just email membership at tribesober.com and Sue will send you one. Over the last year, Susanna's been throwing the book at her sobriety. She's been to our Zoom cafes and participated in the chat rooms. She's still reading the Quitlet, and like me, she's a great fan of Christy Coulter. I'm going to put a link to Christy Coulter's brilliant essay called Enjoli in the show notes. Understandably, it went viral, and it's a must-read for anyone on this journey. Susanna also wrote her goodbye to alcohol letter, which is on our website, and I'll link to that in the show notes as well. After a year of sobriety, Susanna is experiencing many benefits, but the ones she highlighted were self-respect, the joy of mornings, and the connection with her children. And her advice to anyone considering this journey is to reach out and talk to someone you trust and be accountable. So many of us have tried to achieve sobriety alone. But as she said, the trouble with that is that it's so easy to cave when it's only you who knows that you're trying to quit. So if you're ready to be accountable, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Susanna has now trained as a coach. So if you'd like more information about that, you can go to her Facebook page, which is Susanna Porowski. She's got a WhatsApp button on there, so that's fairly easy. Or you can email her at coachingwithsusanna at gmail.com. I'll put all this in the show notes. Some of you have already signed up for our journaling course. It's at the end of August and you can get all the details if you go to tribesober.com. You'll see it on the homepage. We're only taking a small group on the journaling course this time, so please sign up today if you're interested. And straight after journaling week, we'll have our annual 66-day challenge. There'll be online audio and community support, all starting on September the 1st. The sign-up page is now live, so just go to tribesober.com and you'll see it on the homepage. Let me finish by reading you a message from one of our chat rooms. This is Aisha, who's on our Breaking Free program. Hi everyone, I just finished part five of Kickstart yesterday and I want to say that it's helping me to see the importance of connecting with everyone. The podcast with Robin Denny is now one of my favourites and I really agree about learning yoga nidra and other such techniques to relax the nervous system. I've not noticed a huge amount of physical change but at least I'm sleeping really well. I'm dealing with difficult family stuff, but thanks to my regular coaching with Lynette, I'm having some amazing clarity about new ways to view old challenges. 
So a lot of change is happening and I'm not very good at opening up in groups about it, but I do check in and feel connected to all of you doing so well. I really feel the podcasts, blogs and books provide a bridge between one way of living and the new one. Sometimes it feels like slow progress, but the bridge takes time to build. I'm looking forward to connecting with whoever is coming to Zoom on Sunday. And I've also signed up for the journaling mini course, which sounds like a welcome creative challenge. It might inspire the goodbye letter to alcohol, which is currently gestating. That's fantastic, Aisha. I'm so glad you're getting so much out of the programme. And I love the way you call it a bridge between one way of living and the new one. The next Breaking Free programme starts on the 6th of October and the waiting list is open now. People on the waiting list will be offered an early bird special, so check it out by going to tribesober.com and hitting our services. Breaking Free is on the drop-down menu. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.